I'm Autumn Lockett. And this is Mitch Randall. And you're listening to Good Faith Weekly. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. And on this episode, Autumn and I are going to catch up a little bit. And then we've got two special interviews. We're first going to talk to Dr. Jeff Woods from the American Baptist Churches USA as they are approaching their biennial for this year. And then later on in the pod, Autumn and I sat down with Good Faith Media's newest contributing columnist, Reverend Starlet Thomas of the Raceless Gospel and Reverend Elisa Adolpe. You want to stay tuned because it gets really real during that interview. So uh, stay tuned. I'm Reverend Starlet Thomas, a womanist in ministry and the host of a new podcast, The Raceless Gospel from Good Faith Media. We're going to talk about that taboo trinity, race, religion, and politics. Season one of The Raceless Gospel has five episodes, five Sundays, if you will. We're going to take you to church each episode. We're going to talk about the sticks and stones, the skin and bones of Christian discipleship through the structure of a church service. And each episode, we're joined by a special guest who will bring a word. The Raceless Gospel Podcast, five episodes, all available March 22nd. I'm your podcast pastor, Reverend Starlet Thomas. Join us as we march into and beyond race, religion, and politics. Learn more at goodfaithmedia.org. Autumn, how are things in your neck of the woods? I'm doing well. I feel like I'm still sort of recovering from our time in Tulsa. Mm -hmm. Um, Not only our time spent boots on the ground there, but then just reflecting through um, the articles and the videos and um, the remembrances that have sort of continued from our time there. And I I know it's so important. We'll circle back to that a little bit in our interview with Starlet, but Mm -hmm. Um, I, th- I think it's a good thing. It's it's okay to um, to still hold that sort of heaviness in your heart. Yeah, and I, I wrote about it uh, this week uh, in my yeah. article at GoodFaithMedia.org uh, about unearthing Tulsa. Uh, one of the most moving moments for me, as we've talked about and continue to talk about, was the excavation of part of Oakland Cemetery looking for the remains of a mass grave 100 years after the fact. And as of yesterday, there have been, what, 27 individuals recovered from this unmarked grave uh, in Tulsa. And, I mean, it. we talk about metaphors, but, I mean, this is something that literally was covered up. Uh, This crime, the murder, uh, the sins of our past. I mean, just so many things that you could associate with what took place 100 years ago. And they're finally going to get a voice. Uh, their stories are being told. And in my piece, I, I, I kind of parallel it to when Jesus walks up to the tomb of Lazarus and says, Lazarus, come forth. Yes. And that's what we're saying to these individuals who have been buried for 100 years. Uh, come forth. Uh, let us hear your story. Let us hear your pain. Let us grieve with you for what has been lost, and not only Mm -hmm. you, but for generations of African Americans, Tulsa. And if there was any case to be made for reparations, by God, this is it. It Uh, is. I mean, just absolutely. And I call for it in the piece. Yeah, you do. And I think that that parallel was really 
important. You know, Jesus was grieved. He was sad. He, um, and then he did what he could to try to fix it. And we'll never be able to repair completely what was broken um, and stolen and just, you know, criminal, completely criminal, but we can sure try. That's exactly right. Exactly right. Well, we've got two really good interviews scheduled this week. Uh, we sat down with Dr. Jeff Wood of ABC USA as they approach their biennial. Uh, I was there with them two years ago in Richmond, Virginia. I had a really, really good meeting there with them. I was actually, I think it was outside of Richmond. It wasn't in Richmond. It was in Virginia Beach. Uh, and uh, just a really great meeting. Uh, Jeff talks a little bit about uh, how they've had to transition to a virtual meeting this year, and they're doing some really cool things virtually. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's a good good interview uh, with Jeff. And then later on, we're going to talk to two of our newest uh, contributing uh, correspondents, uh, Reverend Starlet Thomas and Reverend uh, Elisa Adalpe. And so uh, that is a, a spirited conversation. I love those yeah. two. Listeners, you might grab a glass of milk because it gets a little <laughs> spicy. <laughs> it does. It does. So, uh, so yeah, great time uh, with all three of those as our guests this week. So stay tuned for those interviews. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly, and we've got a very special guest with us today, Dr. C. Jeff Woods. He serves as Interim General Secretary for the American Baptist Churches USA. Prior to serving as Interim General Secretary, Woods served as Associate General Secretary for Regional Ministries. In his role, Dr. Woods worked to encourage the health and vitality of the 33 regional jurisdictions coast-to-coast through the United States. Other denominational positions include serving as executive minister of the Ohio region and four pastorates within the ABC region in the state of Indiana. Dr. Woods, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. Thank you, Mitch. It's good to see you again. Well, Dr. Woods, uh, a lot of our listeners uh, are Baptist in uh, in their tradition, grew up Baptist. I would say predominantly we've got a lot of people that are part of the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, um, maybe some alliance uh, of Baptist uh, in our listenership, and we've got uh, some American Baptist uh, that listen to Good Faith Weekly. But for those of who do not, especially those who come from our non-Baptist tradition. Tell us a little bit about what ABC USA is all about. American Baptist Churches USA is a denomination of 1.6 million members in the United States and about 5,000 congregations. Our history includes the name Northern Baptist, but was changed to American Baptist Churches USA in the 1950s, uh, since our constituency was growing in other parts of the country than just the northern part of the United States. We are in the tradition, if you will, of Martin Luther King Jr., Walter Rauschenbusch, many other legacy American Baptists that have stood for this walk that includes both evangelism and social justice, which many Baptists are not always able to walk those two lines parallel. Wow, that's quite the cloud of witnesses. <laughs> when you talk about, talk yeah. about King and Rauschenbusch, it's like, okay, you, you had me. <laughs> uh, that's fantastic. Well, you've got the biennial coming up, and we're really excited about that. But before we get to uh, this meeting that's going to be uh, virtual in a couple of weeks, uh, let's just kind of talk about pandemic. How did the ABC USA churches 
How are they doing coming out of the pandemic? Uh, what are some trends that you saw uh, over this last year? Because it's been it's been a really tough time for churches and denominations at large. Thank you for that. My background includes some survey work. I'm a statistician as well, so it should be no surprise that we did some survey work during the pandemic. Early on, we found about a year ago that there was an energy probably influenced by adrenaline, simply in in terms of congregations and pastors wanting to um, put their worship service online, be able to celebrate Easter Sunday virtually. And there was this energy that took over for a while. And I think there was an anticipation and expectation that the pandemic would last a few months, and then we would all be back to normal. Mm-hmm. Um, it seemed like about August, September of last year, we began to hear more reports of leaders being worn out, um, just overwhelmed by doing everything differently. Um, One of the realizations that we've tried to share and use to encourage pastors is that it's much more difficult to do things you have been doing differently than doing something brand new. And they're all doing basically all of the previous tasks in a different manner than Mm -hmm. they had done those before. So So it should be no surprise that there are some concerns in terms of of mental health, of of burnout, of being overwhelmed. We've tapped into our American Baptist chaplains and spiritual directors and others who provide services uh, for them. Overall, we're very pleased about the health of our congregation, the outlook of our congregation. Uh, There are only about 5 to 10% that report that they feel like they're they're very fragile at this point, and that not that figure is not much higher than it would be without a pandemic. Um, but we also don't want to ignore this situation of the need of local church pastors to receive um, a, to ensure that they have an adequate support network in place and are receiving the care that they need to be able to lead their congregants. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad to hear that because, I mean, we have heard ourselves at Good Faith Media, we've heard from pastor after pastor who have been struggling during this time and some who just need to walk away for a time. Uh, Churches have been very gracious in granting emergency sabbaticals to to some uh, clergy. Uh, Others just said that they're just done and have walked away permanently. So I'm glad that uh, ABC USA is acknowledging that need and addressing it. Uh, Well, well done. Dr. Wood, something that you said in your comment just now um, reminded me when you when you mentioned that pastors are not building something new, they're having to do everything they've been doing, but in a different way. It reminds me of uh, my family watches this old house pretty religiously on PBS. And so they go into these like beautifully, you know, ancient houses and they go into the bowels of the boiler system and they fix it. And often I, I find myself thinking my dad is general contractor. I'm like, it would really be easier to just like knock this puppy flat and start from Absolutely. a fresh slab. Mm-hmm. But there's so much rich history. Um, there and there's you know the things that exist 
can change and can morph and we can improve them for sure, right? There's improvements to be made. But I think it's really important that we acknowledge that, that it is hard. And especially when you're, when you're working with delicate old bones. (laughs) (laughs) I love that illustration. I end up watching HGTV with my wife on a regular basis as well. And there are lessons for life in nearly all of those shows. Yes. One illustration that I recall hearing actually pre-pandemic, but I think it's apropos today, it's an illustration of a bicycle where they had switched the handlebars to allow the bicycle to turn in the opposite direction. So if you turn the handlebars to the left, the bicycle goes to the right and vice versa. And it's hilarious to watch people um, try to ride the bicycle and they cannot go two inches, four (laughs) inches without falling over. And so then uh, apparently someone mastered this bicycle and it took months for this adult to be able to master this bicycle. Statistics, if you will, that it takes much longer to learn to relearn an old mm-hmm. skill than it would be, you know, for a person to learn how to ride a bicycle for the first time. Yes. And we just have to extend grace, right? Yes. I mean, that's yeah. the answer. Yeah. Yes. And again, I, I want to reiterate that overall, we're very pleased with, yes. with the health of our pastors, with uh, the response of our congregations, uh, with their ability to be re-energized and, and try new things. But we cannot ignore the toll that that work takes upon mm-hmm. our pastors. And the skinned knees and elbows. <laughs> yes. follow, right? Again, great illustration. Figuratively. That's, that's right. No. Uh, well, well, speaking about some of those bruises, uh, not only uh, did we go through a pandemic this last year, uh, but we also went through one of the most um, pivotal social justice moments that I can think of in my lifetime uh, following the death of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Uh, Jeff, you and I met one another up in Wisconsin at Green Lake uh, uh, Baptist Retreat Center when we were covering for Baptist Center for Ethics, covering the Baptist-Muslim dialogue. Uh, And it was a wonderful event, and you've talked about the rich history of American Baptist USA churches involved in social justice causes. I mean, you just named two of the giants, uh, King and Rauschenbusch. how did churches respond to this this movement uh, uh, advocating for racial justice this last year? Because I know some of the pastors that I've talked to, uh, some of them, you know, the churches have been very supportive, but others have not. And it was really surprising well, uh, to those clergy uh, when they didn't receive the support that they thought that they thought was there. Just it was a real revealing time this last year. I appreciate you bringing that up. American Baptists have made great strides in social justice work over the years. Um, We ministered to um, Japanese Americans that were in internment camps uh, during World War II. We were part of the Trail of Tears and had people walking alongside those. In in every major instance, there have been American Baptists right there. But at the same time, we have to say that it is very difficult, and we confess that we have not always been as inclusive as we should have been or need to be in terms of these matters. 
you know, so we, we celebrate the work that is done, but also confess that we often fall short in terms of the kingdom that God would want to create, the table that God would create and invite all persons to. So we did create an anti-racism task force that is addressing these issues. And I appreciate you saying the question that people have different starting points is what we would say Mm -hmm. with this. Uh, We have received questions from many pastors who said, I'm aware of this issue. I I know the need to do something. Um, it, It seems that now I'm ready. Where in the world do I start? Um, One illustration is an African-American executive minister in one of our regions that is using material that has been developed by a a Euro pastor um, in a a different congregation um, and having sessions with the pastors in that region to work through some of these issues. As we created the task force, we created three subgroups. Developing resources for individuals is one, developing resources for congregations is another, and developing resources for institutions is the third. To address an issue that is so systemic, we believe that resources must also be developed for people in, at multiple starting points and at all, in all phases of this work. Well, that, that's great. I'm glad that uh, I knew ABC USA would be involved in it and on the front edge of, of providing resources for congregations. So that's great to hear. Well, you've got a biennial coming up, sir, uh, in two weeks, June 24th through the 26th. Uh, the biennial for American Baptist Churches USA begins, and it's virtual this year. So how's that going? You know, God has a sense of humor. Um, <laughs> yeah. We developed the theme for this particular biennial pre-pandemic and developed the theme of imagine. (laughs) So I think God then decided to test us in particular, uh, test us to do good. I'm never tempted to do evil, but test us to do do good and say, okay, uh, with that theme, how in the world then are you going to do the biennial mission summit, as we call it, um, virtually? And in the beginning, we had some conversations and we said, well, this won't be hard. You just have a couple of speakers and you stream those speakers and you're done. Um, But the bicycle illustration um, comes into play here. We decided early on to really have all of the major elements that would take place in a typical biennial, but do them virtually. Mm -hmm. And we're really proud of the team uh, that we put together and their performance. And I just have to give a shout out to Tina Kiernan, our biennial program coordinator, Jeremy Fackenthal, our producer, Sharice Shedrit, our um, registrant that have worked multiple hours, many months in putting this together. Um, but for instance, you know, when you go around to a particular booth, if you're in person at a biennial um, and you meet people, we have those. We have virtual booths. There's basically a website for all of the different booths that you would see. You can make appointments and meet people there. You can watch videos. You can either even gather the goodies uh, that you would pick Love up from that. one of those booths. Um, As you register, you clicked on, I'd like to receive what we call an experience box, and you uh, then 
participants are receiving a mug. You know, join us at this hour. Get your own cup of coffee. It includes communion elements for communion. Um, the kind of goodies that you would pick up at a booth. That's fantastic. You can click on even a person's name. If you wonder if this person is present, click on their name, make an appointment with that person, and have a virtual chat, just as you would do in person, um, seeing pieces people that you only normally see every couple of years. Wow. That's great. I mean, wow. I mean, this is very interactive. So you guys have done a fabulous job. Extremely interactive. Uh, yes. So I was it looking is a little, yeah, I'm sorry, it no, is a little expensive. Um, you know, and so we've, we've had to try to just explain that to people that if you add up all the contact hours, this is less than $7 an hour. Mm -hmm. um, it's a little more than a hundred dollars for a registration, but it includes all of this interactive material, an on-demand library, a week-long um, schedule of activities, and so forth. Yes. Yeah, I was looking at the program, and man, you've got some heavy hitters uh, for keynote speakers, a lot of great programs. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I am going to be very disappointed if the opening number is not somebody dressed up as John Lennon and Yoko Ono singing Imagine. But uh, <laughs> well, There's still time. I'll check with our production team. Yeah, they're, they're always happy to have new ideas in the last week of preparation. Right. They can email him at mitch at org with their comments. Uh, thanks. Thanks, Adam. Uh, well, Jeff, tell us a little bit. What are you looking forward to? I mean, there's so much rich material, and we we you know obviously don't have time to go through it all. Uh, we encourage people right. to go to uh, abcusa.org uh, to find out more about the biennial. Uh, but tell us kind of some of the highlights you're looking forward to. Yeah, we're really excited about our keynote speakers. Winterborn Harrison Jones has connections with American Baptist over the years, but he is a tremendous speaker. Um, he calls himself a church person out of the lineage of Dr. William Augustus Jones, Dr. James Forbes, Dr. Mordecai Wyatt Johnson, and Dr. Howard Thurman. He self-describes himself in those traditions. Wow. He has degrees from Colgate Rochester Divinity School and American Baptist School, um, Lilly School of Philanthropy, Harvard University Graduate School, Hertie School of Governance in Berlin, Germany. His academic credentials are incredible. He's very articulate, and we're so looking forward to hearing him Good. speak at our biennial. That's going to be great. And uh, listeners can find out more about the biennial at ABC. Um, it's hyphen, right? ABC Correct. hyphen USA.org. Also, we'll have that we linked have, in our show notes. Okay. That's great. And we do have a separate uh, biennial registration website. It's simply www.americanbaptists2021.com. AmericanBaptist2021.com if they want the directly to the registration. Great. Well, Dr. Woods, thank you so much uh, for being with us uh, today on Good Faith Weekly. We know that you are extremely busy two weeks uh, outside of the biennial. To our listeners, we just want to encourage you to, uh, to, to log on and to register for the biennial. I was in, there in person in Richmond two years ago, had a wonderful experience, learned a lot, made a lot of great connections. I I am disappointed that uh, we're not going to be in person again this year, but this sounds like you've done a fabulous job creating this virtual event, and it's really going to be a success, I think. 
Could I just add the two other keynotes? Speakers? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, Brianna Parker, if you're not familiar with her, um, she's a young African-American who launched the Black Millennial Cafe. Mm-hmm. And the cafe um, helps persons reach out to millennials, African-American millennials in particular. But her work is incredible. And we're also looking very much Good. to hearing her that's as a fantastic. keynote speaker. Yeah, that's great. And then, I don't know if you've ever had Susan Sparks um, on your air before, but Susan is is the only female comedian with a pulpit in the United States. Now, I know that there are many pastors that say I'm a comedian, but she has the credentials to be a comedian. She's been on ABC, CNN, CBS, the History Channel. She's a She's a, a real comedian with real credentials, and she's an American Baptist pastor, Madison Avenue Baptist Church in New York City. She's doing a comedy hour for us also oh, wow. as a part of the biennial. There's so many pieces. Ralph Warnock um, is giving a preview of, of a video that our American Baptist Historical Society is doing with him. And there are many other elements, but I just wanted an opportunity to mention those other speakers. Thank you for that. Wow, that is fantastic. Yeah, I I know Reverend Sparks. Uh, She is a delight and a hoot at the same time. (laughs) Yes. Well, Dr. Woods, thanks again for joining us at Good Faith Weekly. And uh, to our listeners, again, sign on and register. It's going to be a great biennial for ABC USA churches. It is. And as you know, our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. So as we wrap up today, Dr. Woods, can you tell us what your more to tell is? I would say that it is important right now to lift up a situation in the country of Myanmar, Mm. Burma. Our first missionaries were sent to that country, and they have had a hundred-year civil war that really came to a head this year. They finally were allowed to have democratic elections in 2015, then again in 2020, uh, November of last year, and the democratic candidates received 75% of the vote last November. The military at that point realized that they would no longer be able to control the country. They arrested have continued to detain the elected leaders there, and over 800 protesters have been killed, in which the average age of the persons killed is 17 years old. They're killing children um, who are protesting uh, the military coup that is there. This is also, though, where the work of a denomination comes in. Mm -hmm. Um, We have received reports on the ground. We use those reports to really advocate, um, not only pray, but but advocate for the needs that are there. We have had opportunities to meet with U.S. senators, congresspersons, members of the White House. Um, Part of the reason for getting an audience is we do have 80,000 members of the Burma diaspora here in the United States. And so we're gathering information advocating for them, meeting with others. Uh, One person from the White House said, I've had better information on this call than I've had the last six months in my own sources. Right. I mean, so that does, you know, tell the work of a denomination Mm -hmm. that where we have these connections, 
um, you know, and, and can gather the information, try to advocate. Uh, but the, con- the situation, though, you know, just continues to worse- worsen. And so I would just ask, you know, the listeners to um, pray for the situation of Myanmar as well. Uh, we do have a call to prayer with up-to-date information if persons want to do more um, on our ABC USA website. Thank you for the opportunity to lift up that need also. Yeah, thank you mm-hmm. so much for sharing that with us. Uh, we really, really appreciate it. Well, thank you for joining us. And uh, for our listeners, uh, stay tuned. Autumn and I are going to sit down with two of our newest uh, contributors for Good Faith Media, Reverend Starlet Thomas and Reverend Elisa Adalpe. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. And on this episode, we've got two very special guests with us because they are employed by Good Faith Media. Reverend Starlet Thomas is a contributing correspondent, the host of the Good Faith Media podcast, The Raceless Gospel, and a member of the Good Faith Media Strategic Advisory Board. She is an ordained Baptist minister. She served previously in both local churches and denominational entities. She is presently pursuing a doctorate of ministry degree at Wesley Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., studying... Ecclesiology and the Intersection of Gender, Politics, and Race, and their Interplay for a Transformative Spirituality. And she resides in Bowie, Maryland. Reverend Elisa Adolpe is a contributing correspondent for Good Faith Media. She has served as a pastor in churches in Georgia and D.C., holds a B.A. from Sanford University and M.Div. from Mercer's McAfee School of Theology, where she discovered her love for writing, and she lives in D.C. Starlet, Elisa Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. Thanks for having us. Starlet, you recently traveled with us, uh, with Good Faith Media, to Tulsa, Oklahoma, to cover the 100-year, like, it says anniversary, but it's not really an anniversary. How, commemoration, I guess we might say, of the Tulsa Race Massacre. So can you tell us about the trip and what you learned? I think the struggle is real in that. And you and your uh, inability to name it because we're we're just now learning yes. about it, so it's hard ha- it's hard to remember something that people uh, mm. work so work so uh, strategically to get people to forget. Uh, mm. So yeah, we came to to be informed of what happened, to learn the story, and what we found out as we uh, walked the streets there is that people really still didn't know why it all happened, and the fact of the matter is, it shouldn't have happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, Twelve miles uh, of community, thirty five blocks of community where people lived and worked and played uh, was destroyed over a lie people chose to believe. Uh, they still can't get the story straight. And that sticks with me. That we heard those conversations, didn't we? In stores. You were in the store and they were like, well, I thought it was this. And I thought they were that. And I thought this was, they still don't know why it happened. 300 people uh, died and they have no rationale as to why. Hearing that uh, in person. Uh, knowing that there are stories that we we have to tell in order for us to do things, the things that we really want to do, which is destroy other people. And human beings need to embrace that, that we have, we have lives that maintain a level of comfort, uh, that maintain privilege, that we tell ourselves stories, we tell our children's stories, we maintain narratives um, that keep us divided uh, for the purpose of, of capitalism. Mm. Um, it's all said and done, it's about me having more than you. And if you have more and than me, keep me more than you. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. To keep it yeah. unbalanced. And so, yeah, we covered that and, and uncovered that a, a lot of us don't know much about the Tulsa race massacre. And so, no, you're, you're right. Again, to say, what do we call it? 
when everybody I talked to when I got home said I didn't know anything about it, including yesterday. Uh, So I didn't know. I thank you for covering that. I had no idea. Right. That's to Mm. me, that was one of the most startling uh, developments. And and for me, it was early on. I didn't find out about the Tulsa race massacre until I was an adult, Uh, grew up in Tulsa, you know, spent, you know, days and days uh, over in the Greenwood district, had no idea that that had taken place uh, in my home city. It's amazing how stories like this that you that are significant in our country's history have just faded away or have been covered up. And I was double that was doubly emphasized when we visited the Oaklawn Cemetery there in Tulsa. We happened yeah. to be there on the day when they were attempting to exhume uh, bodies that had been buried there at the cemetery in unmarked graves. It was too wet for them to do it uh, the particular day we were there, but a couple of days later after we had left, they actually discovered six more bodies there at the cemetery that uh, were in a mass grave. The news, the news this morning said it's up to like 24 now. Did you see that? Mm-hmm. I haven't seen that. That was in the it's local news good. this morning. It's sick of yeah. I think it was, there's, a, there's a violence uh, to the silence. And we, when we sat in that worship service and the preacher shared that his grandmother spoke of socially colored white people in hushed tones, that she was still very much afraid to speak negatively about them, says everything about the power of whiteness and what that silence actually means uh, for African people, that that silence spared their lives. They knew if they said anything about the Tulsa race massacre, that they could be killed. And who could they trust anyway? Uh, when when you have a government that is deputizing citizens, when you you highlighted that so beautifully, they were were playing the sweet dropping on you. I mean, who can you trust when the when the deceit is organized, when the violence is is structured and happens over time? They still whisper about it. So the Mm -hmm. fact that we got we got to be there and to amplify those voices means that much more to me. Yeah, and it was—I mean, it just—it was uh, a microcosm, but it was—it was a metaphor that was extremely real for me. Thinking, and uh, you know, as we just learned today, the twenty-four more bodies—the counts up to twenty-four bodies—about how history is buried, how history is covered up, how history is whitewashed, and literally and figuratively. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so. You know, Elisa, I mean, we've talked about this as, as well, um, you know, coming from um, a Latinx heritage, um, you know, how, you know, the, the Hispanic, Mexican, especially our relationship with Mexico, how some of these holidays have been whitewashed over time and they've lost meaning and purpose because mm-hmm. of that. Um, I'm really excited about your generation that are telling these stories and making certain that they are accurate and told and heard. So I mean, what do you, Elisa, what do you think about these stories that, that we're covering and literally uncovering as time goes by? Uh, you and I had a specific conversation about Cinco de Mayo uh, just uh, last month and, and what has become of that holiday. Um, you know, can you speak to that? Um, you know, I mean, certainly this this is something that we see continuously, and and you spoke very well to it. Yeah, thanks. Um, you know, the, one of the the phrases that I wrote down um, as Starlet was speaking um, is, "What do we call it?" Um, mm-hmm. And when you know, when something when we've unearthed um, something, and th- there's danger in 
not naming something, you know, and there's danger in when we allow those in power to name it. Um, there, there, there's some, there, there has to be, you know, again, there has to be more to tell there than what those in power call it. And when we don't name it anything at all. Um, and so, but, you know, for me with that conversation, Mitch, about Cinco de Mayo, you know, I, my second grade teacher who was the worst, um, she, I remember class we were, she was, she, they took us out of class in second grade and she was, she was teaching us how to make flour tortillas and, you know, half the class was like, we don't know how to make these. Why are we doing this? And she was like, well, we're doing this to celebrate Cinco de Mayo. And that was the first time I'd heard of it. And I had no idea what it was. And so the teacher explains what it is. And I went home and my mom, you know, was like, yeah, I mean, it's something that some people celebrate. Um, it's not really a big thing. And I was like, but the teacher's making this to be some great thing that we were supposed to celebrate every year. And she was like, no, not really. I mean, some people do. It's a very regional thing. Um, and there's this phrase that my mom says when she just gets either tired of explaining something to me or just like doesn't know how else to say it. And she just says in Spanish, así lo hacen los gringos. And it's just like, this is what white people do. <laughs> I don't know what else to tell you. Like, please stop asking me. And so <laughs> it was just when I was just like, but why? Why did we do this? Like, así lo hacen los gringos, mijita. I don't know. Like, this is something that people want to celebrate. And so when I got back to, when I came back to America for college, and the way it was celebrated, it was like, it was this equal parts, like this isn't my history, but also you're, you're stealing my culture for something so racist. And it's like this type of uncontrollable, like you're trying to gather something that you never really held, but it's also somehow yours. Um, and, uh, you know, every year, you know, Cinco de Mayo comes around and it's just such a hard thing to watch people be in because it is you know it is a big time for you know latina businesses for restaurants and it's just also this time where it's like we give people a pass to do racist things that you're just like come on please don't use a sombrero as a chip and dip and so you know it like how how we name those things and how we and and i think for me giving get, telling the story and telling a story well and being able to name what the implications are of those, I think helps put perspective, put some perspective on a story for folks who have often just seen it as like, oh, just an, an excuse to do something or an excuse to celebrate, but let's understand why. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, naming a story is important and giving, giving, you know, whether it is hard things to name in that, whether it is funny, whether it is triumphal, I think being able to give a name to something, um, and tell the story honestly and with truth, um, I think helps us shine light, um, and doesn't make us weaker, but I think makes us stronger as storytellers, um, and as people of faith who, you know, tell this story, you know, this, this long, you know, long-winded story, um, of hope and, I think it helps us say it well, and it helps us keep us on. It, it keeps us honest, I think, yeah. as people of faith, as people of faith in a country that was founded on horror for many people. I think telling stories honestly and truthfully um, as people of faith in America um, actually helps us and not makes us weaker. Right. So, Elisa, you recently joined the staff of Good Faith Media as a contributing correspondent, uh, and really this is going to be for both of you, but Elisa, I want you to answer first. 
Why do you think it's important for organizations like ours, and we probably just answered this question in our previous uh, conversation, but why do you think it's important for organizations like GFM to help develop a theological framework to interpret current events? Um, I think my short answer is because there ain't nothing new under the sun, as Koheleth tells us. Um, but I think you know, I think it's important um, for us to create a, a perspective for people of faith who are, I think, searching for answers, and I think are tired of, or I think people, and I, I will name, you know, and I don't want to name for an entire generation, um, but I think for a generation that has been that is just kind of tired of being force fed, you know, stories and um, half truths. Uh, we've become quite suspicious of institutions that have said, this is, this is how it is. We are so suspicious. <laughs> it's very, it, you know, and like, I think, you know, there's, we, there's, there's always, there's going, always going to be suspicion of institutions when we know that institutions were created to protect themselves. And so, and, and it's not to say we should destroy all institutions, but to always remind ourselves that there's more to the story, right? Like that's the whole, that, that you know, there's more to tell that, that is the, you know, that is the, 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 the work of good faith media. And so with that, I think we're, we're inviting people to see a faith perspective that is done with honesty and integrity. Um, because I think the, options are well here is here's media and and you know you can say that it's polarized you can say that it's fake well don't please don't say that it's fake um but that it is you know there there are so many ways that people of faith are being torn and i think that when faith-based media is done well and honestly um i think when people know that people who are telling these stories are doing it from a perspective of not only do I want, like, am I a person of faith? I want to see us thrive and hear the truths that we must know. Mm-hmm. And I think when people see that work and see it done, being done honestly and truthfully and with integrity, um, I think there's some trust gained there. Um, and I think for me, when I see it done in a very honest way, um, I think it helps me feel like I'm not alone. Um, I love that. As a person who has who has questioned institutions, who has questioned stories that I've been given, um, and particularly stories that have been whitewashed. Um, and so when I hear stories of people who look like me, who speak like me, um, who have had a, a similar experience like mine, um, it makes me feel like I'm I'm not alone and that um my story is being told through the words and experiences of others. Mm-hmm who have the gift of, of telling stories honestly and well. Right. Uh, yeah, I, I love that. I love that. So yeah. our next question is for both of you. Um, as young female ministers, can each of you offer some insight on how the church is doing? <laughs> I mean, we could really stop the question there, right? But let's add a little bit of qualifiers here. Um, doing and supporting women in ministry, especially in leadership roles. And I have a follow-up to this too. Um so how's the church doing? And then also, how are women doing in supporting women in ministry? Because I think there's an interesting angle there. Um, anyway, we'd just love to hear both of your thoughts on that. I'm going to set this one out so you two uh, can take it. <laughs> <laughs> I will edit this awkward. 
awkward pregnant pause. What that pause is about. Sure. It's not awkward at all. There is a knowing in the silence. Yeah. Even qualified by saying women because I was already going to say it. Take it away, Elisa. Oh, you know, I, I have learned, you know, my, so I, I need to start with saying, you know, my, um, when my parents, my parents are missionaries, they've been missionaries for 20 years now. This is the 20th year doing this work. Um, and I remember just, there was this big shift for us in our familial faith life because they said, you know, they were like, we need to be in, we need to be involved in churches and faith communities that affirm, you know, I remember my dad saying that, that affirm both mom and dad. And mm -hmm. I didn't understand that. And they said, you know, there's, there's, there are some faith communities that don't affirm that, you know, that your mom wants to be a missionary as well, or a pastor, and they do not affirm that. And I remember thinking, well, that's dumb because you know people like not, not, men aren't the only smart people in the world and women are, are smart too and it just it was very confusing to me and so then it just became you know for a child to, to have that shift and you know to equate one denomination as the one for women and another denomination as not for women and so there was that very concrete understanding of what it was and so for a very long time, my understanding was this one denomination is for women, like they are for them. And then yet not seeing it in practice mm. and not seeing it in practice by men and women. And yes. then like struggling to find the language to understand that. Um, and it really was by writers, you know, by women of color. Um, Mona Elthahawe wrote this book about, it's called The Seven Necessary um, Sins for Women. It is like my second Bible. And she, and she has this whole thing about how women will still protect patriarchy because in doing so, there's this sense of we will still win if we do that. And I remember like when I heard, when I heard that or when I read that, that phrase or sentence, it just, it just so many things clicked for me about women in ministry. Um, and I say that to say, I think there's still some fear about being unapologetically, about being women in ministry and about being our whole selves and not these archetypes that we have been set up to be. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you can either be the badass, I'm going to, you know, I don't give a, I don't, I don't give a, I, I don't, I don't care what you think about me. I don't know what I'm allowed to say on this podcast. But, you know, I don't, <laughs> I don't, care. Right, don't worry. You know, I don't care what you think. I'm going to be who I am. I'm going to say these truths or there's the, I need to be really nice and I need to be extremely pastoral and I need to make sure every single person and every single man in this room never, ever feels uncomfortable and no one should ever choke on who I am. And it's just like, that's what we've been given. And it's not fair. And it's exhausting mm -hmm. because we're not, we're not allowed to be our full selves because we're either one or the other. And there's no room to be anything other than those two things. And then when you're a woman of color, you have to be just as pastoral, just as nice. Your voice has to be just as tempered, if not more, because anything other than sweet and kind is playing into some some expectation or some stereotype that you've already been put in mm -hmm. of understanding, oh, well, here's this spicy Latina who's just angry and who's gonna, you know, say something spicy or, and it's just, it, there's there's so many boxes that, that women are not so many, there's boxes that women are put in in ministry 
that don't allow us to be complex past that don't allow us to be complex people and then doing so don't allow us to be pastors who can fully speak to what it means to be a human and what it means to be complex and live in a world um where you know live, live in a world as a person of faith and i think um for the women who have come before us who paved that tra- like trail thank you and also there's still so much more to learn Mm-hmm. And I think that's for me. That's where the state of ministry for ministry women in ministry is. And um, there's so much, so much work to be done. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean that. The, the, wow, there's a lot to unpack there, but uh, <laughs> uh, because is it was just that? so as great. I mean, Sorry, it was fantastic. Did I make it wonderful? No, it was wonderful. So this yeah. is never my struggle. My first pastor was a woman. So mm-hmm. someone when I announced my call to ministry, and someone look like they had a doubt i could care less i had already seen <laughs> and you couldn't unsee it also when god called me it wasn't a three-way call mm. it wasn't on a group chat it wasn't in a zoom meeting it wasn't part of a facebook group so i could care less and this is just me i could just care less i've also lived long enough to know that everybody is complicated mm. everybody has a has a spicy or a passionate side and everybody has a pastoral side that is the lie of white supremacy that whiteness and white people are kind can we go back to tulsa mm. <laughs> the myth of the white people like we need to kill that yeah because clearly there is there is there is there is rage there's anger there's panic there's fear and there's a passion around it that, imp- that makes them feel empowered to kill people so i don't yeah. feel the need to be boxed into anything because if if we keep talking like that, it suggests that these socially colored white people don't have, like, we haven't seen rage. Can we go to January 6th? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Like we, have to, we have to tell the story in a way that shows that everybody is just as complicated, just as hypocritical, uh, that we live and move and have our being in ways that conflict. And that I don't, see, when I was pastoring, I did both. When I felt pastoral, I was. When I, when I felt that the moment called for prophetic, I did. But we do know that following Jesus will get you kicked out of the church. And I have no problem with that because I'm going to be my full self. I refuse to live my life apologizing for my existence mm-hmm. to human beings. Mm-hmm. I am here, therefore I belong. And there's nothing more that I need to say about it. These are people and we give people power. This is people power. This is not divine power. These people will not always be. And I think we start to talk and I had to have a, had to have a little come to Jesus meeting with somebody very recently about their privileges and the need to divest of them. You can read about them in next week's column. <laughs> <laughs> well Shameless plug. Uh, it is a, there's a need to remind people that you're no different than, no better than me. Yeah. Not based on your gender, your race, your socioeconomic status, your geographic location. You are made of the same dirt as me. And last time I checked, God doesn't make people using secondhand dirt. And I wasn't created in some sweatshop, kept off the books, created mm-hmm. a little lower than men. So miss me with all of that. Mm -hmm. I have a little bit of life left to live and I'm not going to spend it in the mind of somebody else caring about how they think about me. My biggest enemies have been women. Mm -hmm. Every door that's ever been opened for me has been from a man. I have not been helped by women for the majority of my ministry. Mm -hmm. That's what I have to say about women in ministry and women helping women. Women have been, uh, have have gotten in the way more so than they helped me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let me ask you. Yeah, yeah, it's not talked about. Oh, right? I can talk no, about it. No, no it's but not. Like, I don't hear that. I'm like, men keep us out. And I'm like, mm, no. It's, no. Like, it's, 
there's when you know you know that tote bag that's like you know live your life with the you know with with the arrogance or something of a mediocre white man and it's absolutely to me because it's like (laughs) ma'am no let me tell you how many times a mediocre white woman has been praised for doing the bare minimum and i you know I have to, I have to have the best, the best English. I have to speak the, you know, I have to speak eloquently. I cannot ever lose my temper. And if I wear a red lip, it is because I'm feeling sassy today. It is like, let me tell you, like, can I be mediocre, please? Yeah. Yeah. But you're not. That's the thing. Oh, thank that's, you. That's the problem. And yeah. so, <laughs> that's, that's the problem right but there. But I think, right. and that is the, that, like, we're not, we don't talk about enough how women, like and, and I think I tweeted the other day about like not all women support all women, and I what I like what I feel there is that like there is a there is an issue with women still trying to protect the patriarchy in a way that ultimately hurts like hurts other people, and I'm not just like I'm, I'm talking about all women who identify as women, and and there is a way that we that 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 is harmful, and we do not talk about it, and. Um, and I think in particularly in ministry, and I, again, and I say this because it is still a very new concept that women, that, that we have like a second and third ger- generation of women faith leaders. And we, can, we need to name that there were some really hard things that those first two generations had to go through. And there are some really painful scars that they bear. And some of them did not did not process those in a healthy way and they now inflict them on the new generation and so now there's it another happened to me it's gonna happen to you yep. it didn't help me it's almost like hey is it gonna help you oh yes. yes and i never pledged in college i'm me five me yeah <laughs> same I'm not paying for you to be my friend are you serious that's the other way around. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Yes. And they, they play into a narrative of scarcity that there's not enough space for me. Yes. If you're super creative, nobody's going to pay attention to me. And I've heard people say it. I was giving a presentation once in a church invited by a female associate pastor. Um, and she said to me afterwards, that was a really great presentation. She said, but can I be honest with you? All I kept thinking was, are they going to want to hear from me after listening to you? Because you're so good. She, didn't, she missed the entire presentation. She spent her time judging herself and, and thinking she didn't have a job anymore because I was good. That was such a good presentation. I don't see why they want to listen to me. That's what she got out of that? And Sterling, you know, though, like, I feel like we have been conditioned as women to feel that way, that we have to offer some way to please the male gaze or to please a church gaze in a way that, like, what's your shtick? Like, you're, you're a pastor. What's going to be your shtick? Like, oh, my shtick is I have tattoos up and down my arm. Or like, oh, my shtick is that I am the sweetest, most delicate pastor you've ever met. And it's like, no, like, we, we don't need to have some type of shtick in order to say the things that we were called and, like, called by God to say. And it's not, I don't think it's fair to women. And I think it's twofold. One, it is we've been conditioned to think, we need to put, we need to be some type of performative. And then the other is that we have been told we need to, like, we need to compete against other people to do this. And therefore we need to do everything at all costs to be the best or be the one, be the creative one or be the loud one or the tough one. And it's just, oh, it's exhausting. Yeah. It's not if we would just remember that we are words spoken by God. Mm-hmm. Like I don't have, I tell people all the time, I don't, I'm a grumpy old prophet. 
good looking. I don't have another word for you. If you're sick of me talking about or undermining the credibility of race, talk to God. God put that bone poke and prick in. That's God. That's the prompting of God. God puts words in people's hearts and people's bellies and people's mouths, and they're not going to shut up about it. I'm not going to change the way I move and exist in the world because that's the way that God made me. And who are these human beings that get to come around and critique the creation of God? Who are you? Have a seat. We take several seats. No, we, we are words breathed into. This is this flesh is animated by a spirit that God gave specifically and uniquely to me. I can't change that. No. However she sassily sways into the world, that's, that's what she does. And I don't apologize for that ever. Ever. God didn't stutter when God created me, and I'm not about to. So let me... Can I, can I put that on a sticker, please? Go right ahead. God, <laughs> did, not not stutter. God did not stutter. And that. I'm not about to. <laughs> All right, so I'm back, by the way. <laughs> we didn't even notice that time. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, so I mean, this has been, I mean, just fantastic conversation uh, between both of you. And one of the things that I'm thinking about, and Starlet, you kind of mentioned it in, in your remarks, and we've talked about this before, is... I feel like we're in a very transitional time within the church. Uh, Phyllis Tickle talks about the rummage cell. I completely bought into to her analysis. Do you think we're in a, a moment in time where these traditional institutions, if they fail to, to change, to evolve into this emerging generation that this emerging generation is going to do church in an entirely different way, do gospel in an entirely different Absolutely. way. Absolutely. I'm putting stickers on stuff right now. I'm marking it down right now. You can haggle me right now for these pews, for these hymn books, for some of these pulpits. You can haggle me for some of these church buildings. Mm-hmm. I, I, you can talk me down on the price right now. So yeah, there's, there's a rummage sale. Every, <laughs> absolutely. It's happening every day of the week. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a new kingdom coming, and we're not, we're not settling for this. There's a lot of questions that we have. One of our writers talked about uh, deconstruction and reconstructing the faith. That is exactly what's happening. So we're not doing away with, we're just knocking a few things down. Mm-hmm. We're just throwing a few things out. This no longer works. It no longer fits. It's two sizes, too small. Or I didn't ask for it. You know, it's not mm-hmm. the right color. It doesn't reflect my character. It's ugly. It's out of style. It's outdated. I think I keep handing down theologies that don't fit. They yeah. no longer fit. They were written for a different generation, a different time, and they just don't fit. They just don't look good either. It's a bad cut, <laughs> bad shape. It's just somebody it's, shopped off the off registry. Listen, he's not <laughs> registered for any of It used to be a, it's the, the aesthetic is off. You know, it's just yeah. not it's yeah. fitted. And to ask someone to wear stuff that you picked out for them that they had no choice in. No, no, thank you. What, you know, so, Charlotte, yes, what, what gives what gives me hope is that. Uh, is that exactly what the two of you have been talking about uh, during this interview has been, it seems as though if the institution would reject you or try to make you into something that you're not, uh, I guess a logical conclusion would be that there would be a generation who just left the church, just said, you know, I've had enough of it. I'm out of here. Um, you know, and just go on. And, 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 and there is, I mean, the, the fastest growing group in the United States is now nons. But as people of faith, 
you're not abandoning your faith. In fact, you're embracing your faith. You're, you're letting the Holy Spirit, you're letting your relationship with God continue to form you, but you, your generation is open to new ways and new avenues to do ministry and to be prophetic. And that's what I love about this, is that the church is changing, and I'm excited about these changes. I'm leaning into them. I'm, I, I want the church to change, and I want to follow where the Holy Spirit's taking us, because it's exciting. It's dangerous places. Um, you know, it may get us killed, <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> But, uh, you know, the guy we uh, we call Lord uh, had something to say about that, too. Mm-hmm. Well, my gosh, this has been robust, uh, even though uh, we have muddled through some technical difficulties. Uh, thank you both for joining us this week. We are glad that you're part of the Good Faith Media team. Uh, just, uh, you know, I just I wake up every morning just thanking God for the team that we have at Good Faith Media because it is outstanding because of people like you. Uh, I mean, Elisa, you're the newest part of this team. We're grateful that you've joined our team. Starlet, thank you for what you're doing with the Releases Gospel. And Autumn, as my co-host and cohort in this, uh, thank you for uh, standing beside me and uh, pushing me and leading me. I appreciate uh, all that you do as well. And before- that's reminding you to hit record, right? <laughs> I mean, let's just say Oh, wow. Is. I didn't hit record. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's, all, it, it's all on tape. In fact, uh, I think I've got three files uh, from this interview. So uh, before we let you guys go back uh, to your writing, uh, Autumn's got one last question for you. I do. So our tagline at Good Faith Media, as you know, is there's more to tell. Uh, although we may be adding the subtitle uh, and God didn't stutter, but but we're going to talk about trademark and stuff and IP law later. Uh, tell us, based on our conversations today, what is your more to tell? Uh, that a new story is coming. Mm, love it. That's good. Um, I, I'm at a loss. Like, I just, I think we should, we just need to end there. Um, I think what, what is, what is more to tell? Um, I, I, you know, I think of what my therapist recently told me, and I told her that for a very long time, I was worried about being too much for people. Um, and she reminded me like, let them choke. (laughs) And I just, I think like it is be, be you do not, do not hold back. And I think that is that is really important for everyone is that do not hold back who you are. Um, and I think our queer sisters, our, our queer siblings are reminding us of that this month mm. um, and being, being unapologetic, unapologetically them. And <clears throat> I think we need to all be reminded of that is do not hold back. I love that. What, and you get the last word. That was great. Well, Starlet, uh, Elisa, thank you so much for joining us on Good Faith Weekly. Uh, just, it's been a delight and been very insightful, inspiring. So, thanks for being with us this week. Thank you for having me. It was fun talking to y'all. Listeners, thank you for tuning in to Good Faith Weekly. We appreciate uh, each and every one of you, and we will see you again or hear you again next week. So, until the next episode, keep living good faith.